Last time we spoke about the situation in the North Pacific and the grand conclusion to the Chindits Operation Longcloth. The Battle of the Komondorsky Islands had basically put a nail in the coffin that was the Aleutian Islands campaign for Japan. They could not hope to resupply Attu and Kiska properly, therefore America would have a free hand to build up and invade them. Also, the crazed onion man Wingate had taken his boys into the fray of Burma, and they paid heavily for it. Yes, despite all the glory and fame that the propaganda was spewing out, the operation, in reality, had sacrificed many lives for a little gain. Wingate's erratic behavior led to dangerous decision-making which took a toll on his men. In the end, what can be said of the operation was it at least provided something positive to boost the morale for the British in the Far East. But today, we are going to be speaking about the falling of a major giant of the Pacific War. This episode is Operation Vengeance. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I've just now released a full documentary on things you might not know about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. This week's exclusive podcast over there is an interview I did with Chuck Myers. Chuck Myers retired from the United States Navy after serving aboard many aircraft carriers. He's also an associate at the USS Hornet Museum today. He was the main historical consultant for the recent Midway film. So the interview is about the USS Hornet's history and a lot of stuff that went on during the making of Midway. It's a pretty good one. Check it out. It would mean a lot to me. Now, two weeks ago, I covered Operation Igo. Many of you noticed I sprinkled a bit of foreshadowing information here and there. But to catch you back up to speed, so to say, let me just summarize those events and the dire circumstances that one person would find himself in. It could easily be deduced by early 1943, Admiral Isoruki Yamamoto knew that Japan was staggering towards a catastrophic defeat. Rather, ironically, he was one of those figures in Japan that tossed as much of his political weight as he could to influence going against the decision to go to war with America. He warned his high-ranking colleagues of the great industrial might America held, and that it would inevitably overwhelm Japan. His obsession over a decisive naval victory was driven mostly because he knew the only possible way for Japan to come out of World War II positively was to bring America to the negotiating table as early as possible. But how does one do that exactly? Well, Japan held a significant advantage over America in 1941. Their Pacific fleet was by far larger, vastly better trained, and held considerable technological advantages. Thus, like a game of axes and allies, 
a game that I've been playing since I was a wee little teenager, and that I live stream now and then, by the way. So if uh, any of you in the audience want to watch me do that kind of stupid stuff, well, I do that. Anyways, in a good old game of Axes and Allies, if you are playing the Axis, you typically toss the kitchen sink at the offset of the war, hoping to break the Allies before their productive advantage gradually wins the board. I think that pretty much sums up Yamamoto's thinking. Yamamoto engineered the raid on Pearl Harbor to smash the United States Pacific Fleet enough to thwart them from producing any offensives for at least six months, well at a minimum, though he definitely hoped for a year. After that, his plan had always been to force America into a naval surface battle in the hopes of taking out their fleet and forcing them to negotiate. If they did not negotiate after that, well, he hoped to buy Japan enough time to build a complex defensive perimeter which perhaps could be used to bleed Americans dry, and thus gradually get them to come to terms. Well, his obsession for the grand naval battle led him right into a trap. Yes, a critical thing the Japanese overlooked during most of the Pacific War was code-breaking. The cryptanalysts at Station Hypo did miracles breaking the JN-25 code, leading them to deduce Admiral Yamamoto's Operation MI was directed at Midway Atoll. They had knowledge of the locations, the units, and the timetables, and they used this intelligence to set up a major trap for the combined fleet. The June 1942 disaster at Midway had been a major gambit aimed at forcing the war to an early conclusion, a gambit which had fallen apart. The losses at Midway meant the war was not to be a prolonged one, though it might surprise many of you to know, the chance of another decisive naval battle was not all but lost. It would just be harder to configure. Regardless, the overall viewpoint after the failure at Midway now meant Japan had to fight a war of attrition something Japan could not hope to win. Yamamoto had obsessed himself and countless other high-ranking figures that Midway was to be the decisive battle, but in reality, it fell upon Guadalcanal. Yes, the battle for Guadalcanal emerged the decisive battle they had all sought, but the Japanese high command were too late to come to this conclusion. The Americans basically snuck onto the island in an extremely bold manner, forcing what became a horrifyingly bloody war. In the end, the Americans won the battle for Guadalcanal, and because of Japan's lackluster planning, this simultaneously led to the major loss of the Bunagona San Ananda Front as well. New Guinea and the Solomons were intertwined, and Japan kept fumbling back and forth between them, which inevitably was leading them to losing both. After the loss at Guadalcanal, Japan had lost the initiative for the Pacific War. Now America was in the driver's seat. The Battle of the Bismarck Sea proved to the Japanese high command their sea lanes were no longer safe. America was dominating Japan's ability to move men and supplies across the ocean through a war of attrition using air power and submarines. The Japanese planners understood the Allies were going to advance in two prongs, one through New Guinea and the other up the central northern Solomons. For the Allies to advance, they required the construction of airfields along the way to provide air superiority to cover their surface fleets and the transport of men and supplies. Japan had been massively depleted of ships, aircraft, trained men, resources in general, but one thing they still had an advantage over the Allies was their airfields scattered about the Pacific. On March the 15th, Japanese High Command in Tokyo demanded plans be made to build a new defensive strategy in the Central Pacific. The main idea was to build a stronger defensive perimeter emanating from Rabaul. Thus, on the morning of April the 3rd of 1943, Admirals Yamamoto and Yugaki 
Accompanied by more than a dozen officers of the combined fleet staff, boarded two Kawanishi flying boats and headed for Rabaul. Yamamoto and the high-ranking figures scoured their maps and came up with what was needed to be done to meet this new demand. They needed to hinder the Americans' air power's advance up the Solomons and New Guinea. This meant hitting Allied forward airfields. Four locations were chosen, Guadalcanal, Oro Bay, Port Moresby, and Milne Bay. It was to be called Operation Egozexen, and would be the responsibility of the IJN. By the way, small little side note over here, if a lot of you were wondering why I was pronouncing it Igo instead of Ego, I assume that's how Americans pronounced it, so I just went with that. Sometimes I do that. Uh, the same goes for, I got a few comments on my own channel about, uh, what was it, the pronunciation of uh, Tomiyuki Yamashita. That's how the Japanese pronounce it. Uh, obviously, if you're an English speaker, you would say uh, Tomoyuki Yamashita. It's just one of, you know, sometimes I just pick and choose how I pronounce things. I'm a moron, uh, don't listen to me. Admirals Yamamoto and Junichi Kuzaka established temporary headquarters on Rabaul, and they began planning. The planning led to an incredible concentration of Japanese air power. The 11th Air Fleet and four aircraft carriers of the 3rd Fleet, Tsukaku, Zoyo, Junyo, and Hiyo, would amass a force of 224 aircraft. The air power was going to be used to smash the four targets, and then they would be dispersed to several airfields to mount a new defensive perimeter. They would be sent to places like Buka and Kihilion Bungeville and Balal in the Shortland Islands. Admiral Yamamoto would personally supervise Operation Ego as he took up quarters on a cottage hill, a hill behind the town of Rabaul itself. He spent weeks inspecting airfields and other military installations, meeting with local army and naval commanders at various headquarters scattered about New Britain. As was his typical behavior, he bid farewell to departing air squadrons, waving his hat to them. For ten consecutive days, Japanese bombers and fighters hit their designated targets. More than 200 aircraft attacked Guadalcanal on April the 7th, a raid larger than any attempted during the five-month battle for the island. The Japanese pilots came back with extremely exaggerated claims of success. They claimed to have destroyed dozens of ships, hundreds of aircraft. In reality, Operation Ego amounted to the destruction of 25 aircraft, one destroyer, one corvette, one oil tanker, and two transports. The Japanese had lost around 40 aircraft for this. The Japanese high command, including Yamamoto and even Emperor Hirohito, bought the success stories. Emperor Hirohito sent these congratulatory words. Please convey my satisfaction to the Commander-in-Chief Combined Fleet and tell him to enlarge the war result more than ever. But over on the other side of the conflict, General Kenny had a more damning critique of the way Yamamoto uses air forces during Operation Ego. The way... Yamamoto had failed to take advantage of his superiority in numbers and position since the first couple of months of the war was a disgrace to the airmen's profession. The reality was, the air crews were not the same types that had raided Pearl Harbor back in 1941. No, these men in 1943 were, forgive me to say, kind of the bottom of the barrel types. Sure, there remained some veterans and experienced men. But they were far too few to train what should be the brand new generation of Japanese air power. Japan had squandered their veterans and now they were paying a heavy price for it. On October the 25th of 1942, Rear Admiral Ugaki had written this in his diary. 
Every time it rained heavily, about ten planes were damaged due to skidding. The Japanese airfields were no match for the American Seabees, who were performing miracles across the Pacific, building superior fields for their air power. By contrast, the Japanese could not hope to match this. They lacked resources and trained personnel. Operation Ego, in the end, costed the Allies advance 10 days. Yamamoto had his spirits lifted somewhat by Operation Ego, believing it was a triumph. He announced he would conduct a one-day tour of the four bases at Buin, Balao, and Shortland Island, set for April the 18th, and this is where our story truly begins. Yamamoto's tour was sent over the radio, and those waves were using the JN-25D Naval Cipher to the 11th Air Flotilla and the 26th Air Flotilla. Admiral Yamamoto's operations officer, Commander Yasuji Watanabe, would go on the record complaining that the information about Yamamoto's visit to the Balali airfield should have been done by courier, and not by radio. But the communications officer replied to him this, This code only went into effect on April the 1st, and cannot be broken. The message was picked up by three stations of the Magic Apparatus, the United States Cryptanalyst Project. One of these three stations, ironically, was the same team responsible for breaking the codes that led to the disaster at Midway, Station Hypo at Pearl Harbor. Major Alva B. Laswell, a duty officer at Joseph Rochefort's Combat Intelligence Unit Station Hypo, deciphered it and pronounced it to be a jackpot. The message contained highly detailed information, and it was easy to deduce the message was about Yamamoto. It contained his departure time, April 18th, 6 a.m. Japanese Standard Time, 8 a.m. Guadalcanal Time, set for Belail, 8 a.m. Japanese Standard Time, 10 a.m. Guadalcanal Time, his aircraft was to be a G4M Betty, and the number of his escorts were six zeros. His entire itinerary for the tour was in the message. Admiral Yamamoto's plane was going to be heading over the southern end of Bungeville on the morning of the 18th, a location that happened to be just within the fighter range of Henderson Field. Alva Laswell and the intelligence officer Jasper Holmes took the deciphered message to SyncPak headquarters and handed it to the fleet intelligence officer Ed Layton, who tossed it upon Admiral Nimitz's desk a few minutes after 8 on April the 14th. Nimitz scrutinized the chart in his wall, and he confirmed himself that Yamamoto's plane would enter airspace that could be reached by American fighters from Henderson Field. He asked Leighton, Do we try to get him? The question honestly was a tough one. Was it wrong to target the Combined Fleet's chief based on some sort of convention upon military chivalry? Like most naval officers, Nimitz had interacted socially with Japanese officers during the interwar years. Nimitz was not a particularly vengeful nor bloody-minded man. In eras past, an American flag or general officer would certainly refuse to have his rival commander assassinated. For you American listeners, could you conceive George Washington ordering a hit on William Howe? How about Robert E. Lee ordering a hit on Ulysses Grant? However, war in the 20th century was not like the previous centuries. Hell, even by the standards of the war in Europe, the Pacific War was unbelievably more brutal. Honestly, if you wanted a good book on the subject of just how brutal the Pacific War was, try John D. Dower's War Without Mercy, Race and Power in the Pacific War. It's one of my personal favorites. 
Now, during the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, and cough, cough, if you want to hear more about that, please go over to my personal channel where I have a interesting episode on the entire Russo-Japanese War. I will admit there is a fatal flaw to the episode. Unfortunately, I sped up the speed of the narration just a little bit by like 1.15, let's say. This is because the episode was simply too long. I tried to cover the entire thing, and it is a it's a pretty long war. But um, it's one of my more popular episodes, I'd say. A lot of people say it's quite good. It's just, yes, the narrating can be a little jarring. It's kind of as if Ben Shapiro taught you the Russo-Japanese War, I guess. And just a little teasing bit of information for some of you. I'm working with Kings and Generals on a little project in the future that has to do with it. And I think it's going to be pretty big. But anyways, during the Russo-Japanese War, the IJA and the IJN had strictly adhered to the rules of war. Russian prisoners were housed very well, fed well, provided good medical care, given cigarettes and alcohol. And that second one, well, that's very important to Russians as we know. Those who died within captivity were buried with military honors. Going forward in time a bit, during World War I, the Japanese took German prisoners after the siege at Tsingtao, and they treated them extremely well in Japan. They even let them parade around the country with a band and such. Those German POWs were actually quite famous in Japan. In fact, the treatment of the German POWs had a small hand to play in how Japan got into bed with Germany later. And I would like to mention, I have a multi-part series on my YouTube channel, yes, I'm a sleazeball doing another plug-in, on Asia during World War I. So I have an individual episode on the Battle of Tsingtao, what Japan did during World War I, what China did during World War I, what Southeast Asia did during World War I, which was pushed heavily by my Vietnamese audiences. It's actually a pretty interesting episode. I learned a lot myself. And of course, I did an episode on the German raiders in the Pacific during World War I. They're pretty good episodes, and they haven't gotten that many views. I don't think there's a huge interest in it, I guess, but uh, I'm pretty proud of them. But anyways, what I'm trying to get at is that Japan was acting with chivalry. An unbelievable amount of chivalry. Though, it didn't pay out for them in the end, as during the Russo-Japanese War, you know, the triple intervention screwed them over. Then, during World War I, they were greatly humiliated uh, with <laughs> Wilson's kind of racial um, smack against their face when they just wanted to be treated as equal. And uh, yeah, all those events kind of led to World War II. But anyways, uh, like I'm trying to say, after those events, um, as we've seen during this series, Japan wasn't exactly acting chivalrous anymore when it came to the Pacific War. They were acting quite opposite. Nimitz may have hesitated to give the order, but he was a man who knew full well of the Japanese actions in China, the Philippines, Malaya, Hong Kong, the East Indies, the Solomons, I mean the list goes on. I guess you can say barbarity dishes out barbarity. Yet aside from the morality question, was it wise to kill Admiral Yamamoto? This was, after all, the man who planned and executed the disastrous Midway Offensive, losing four aircraft carriers with nearly all of their aircraft. Yamamoto had also mismanaged the Guadalcanal campaign and deployed air and troop reinforcements in piecemeal. He arguably was doing quite a good job losing the war. Leighton knew Yamamoto personally, and he argued that he was the best respected military leader in Japan and that his death would, quote, He's unique among their people. Aside from the emperor, probably no man in Japan is so important to civil morale. His absence would demoralize the fighting navy. 
You know the Japanese psychology. It would stun the entire nation. Then Leighton said this to Admiral Nimitz. You know, Admiral Nimitz, it would be just as if they shot you down. There isn't anybody to replace you. To this, Nimitz smiled amusingly, and he replied, It's down in Halsey's Balwick. If there's a way, he'll find it. All right, we'll try it. Thus sealed the fate of Admiral Aisaruku Yamamoto. Admiral Nimitz sent a your eyes only type of message to Admiral Halsey, alerting him to the situation and ordering a fighter interception with the concluding remarks of Best of luck and good hunting. Codenamed Operation Vengeance, and it was approved on the 14th. The assassination of Admiral Yamamoto was done under utmost secrecy to protect the cryptanalyst teams. It just so happens Halsey had already been informed of the operation in a chance encounter at Melbourne, Australia. He was inspecting naval facilities in the city, and he dropped by the communications intelligence office where a yeoman named Kenneth Boulier was working on one of the draft decrypts. Halsey came over to his desk and asked, What are you working on, son? And when Boulier explained, Halsey raised his voice and he addressed the entire unit. God damn it, you people knock it off of this Yamamoto business. I'm going to get that son of a bitch myself. So I guess you can say he was a bit enthusiastic about the job. Halsey informed his subordinate air commanders, Admirals Aubrey Fitch and Mark Mitcher, about the details of Operation Vengeance. Southern Bougainville was roughly 400 miles away from Henderson Field, and the aircraft would have to take a roundabout route to evade detection. Thus, the mission would require 1,000 miles or so of flying time, a range that would test the capabilities of even the longest-legged American fighters. Air Soul's commander, Mitcher, called for a secret meeting of his staff on April 16th to figure out the logistics of the operation. It was determined that, to intercept Yamamoto's flight, they should use Lockheed P-38 Lightnings, which held a comparable range to that of the Zero Fighter, though it would not alone be enough. They would need to use a lean fuel mixture and drop tanks to barely make the long flight. It was going to be a tight one. Thus, the timing had to be precise, or else the aircraft would burn their fuel while waiting for the enemy to make their appearance. Major John Mitchell of the 339th Fighter Squadron was assigned the commander of 18 P-38s, piloted by hand-picked airmen. Four P-38s would be designated as killers i.e. the guys who were going to target Yamamoto's G4M Betty, while the other pilots would cover them against the Zero escorts. The killers were to be Captain Thomas Lamphier, Lieutenants Rex Barber, Joseph Moore, and James McLanahan. They were going to intercept Yamamoto in the air just south of Empress Augs Bay. Now the direct flight to Bougainville meant crossing over or being very close to Japanese-held islands, which held observers. This meant they would need to veer far out to sea to avoid visual contact made by Japanese coast watchers. Likewise, they would have to skim the ocean at wave-top height to avoid detection by Japanese radar. Mitchell plotted their mission's course to remain at least 50 miles offshore. This also meant they would have no landmarks to use as checkpoints. It would have to be done with dead reckoning the entire way, flying by airspeed, clock, and compass under strict radio silence for over two hours until they saw Bougainville's coast. 
The striking force would depart from Guadalcanal at 7.20. Even after all the precision and planning, the lightning force would only have around 15 minutes to shoot down Yamamoto. This was going to be an extremely tight one. Mitchell gave the odds of the operation succeeding about 1,000 to 1. Back over in Rabal, commanders like Admirals Ozawa and Jajima were trying to change Yamamoto's mind about making the tour to the forward air bases, thinking he was taking a large risk. Admiral Ozawa argued with Captain Kameto Konoshima, a senior member of Yamamoto's staff, this. If he insists on going, six fighters are nothing like enough. Tell the chief of staff that he can have as many of my planes as he likes. Admiral Ugaki, who was sick in the hospital with dengue fever, even tried to send a message to Yamamoto to not go on the tour. That message, though, did not make it to Yamamoto directly. It was interceived by Admiral Jojima. Admiral Jojima argued, What a damn fool thing to do, to send such a long and detailed message about the activities of the commander of the combined fleet so near the front. This kind of thing must stop. Jojima had actually flown over to Rabal to stop Yamamoto, but Yamamoto did not back down. Yamamoto was a stickler for punctuality. He, alongside his party, arrived to Rabal's Lukuni Field a few minutes before 6 a.m. Japanese time. That is around 8 a.m. Rabal time. The party wore their field green khaki uniforms and airman's boots, aside from Yamamoto, who wore his customary white dress uniform, with his usual white gloves carrying his ceremonial sword. Yamamoto climbed into one of the two G4M Betty medium bombers, and Ugaki climbed into the other one. Yamamoto's Betty had the number 323 painted on its vertical stabilizer. The planes roared down the runway and climbed. The weather was clear with excellent visibility above and below the high ceiling. The aircraft leveled out at 6,500 feet with the bombers holding a close formation, enough for Ugaki to clearly see Yamamoto through his windshield through the other plane. The fighters hung out at about 8,200 feet above them and around a mile around them. The formation headed southeast, making its first landfall on the southern tip of New Ireland, then south along the coast of Bougainville, past the Japanese bases at Buka and Keita, then on to Baleli. Ugaki began to nod off as the group began its descent towards Baleli. Major Mitchell's strike group launched at 7.10 Guadalcanal time, seeing two lightnings fail as a result of blown tires for one and a fuel transfer problem for the other. Both aircraft were part of the killer's team. Thus, Lieutenants Besby Holmes and Raymond Hine were replaced with Joseph Moore and James McClellan. Not a great way to start a precise mission by any means. As they made their first leg of the trip, the P-38s descended to 50 feet to avoid radar detection while the pilots had to endure extremely hot temperatures due to the sea level. The temperatures were above 90 degrees as the sun blazed through their perspec canopies, causing the pilots to sweat like pigs. The P-38 was a high-altitude fighter, and its canopy could not open in flight to regulate the cockpit temperature. Thus, it basically acted like a convection oven, building up heat as the sun beat down on it. With nothing but the sight of the rolling waves for over two hours, the pilots could have very easily dozed off. After 55 minutes of the first leg, Mitchell turned right to 290 degrees, then after 27 minutes, 305 degrees. 38 minutes after this, another 20 degrees turn to make the 40-mile leg to the south edge of Empress Bay, all using clocks and compass. 
As they crossed the bay, they turned 90 degrees, and they were around 4 minutes from their calculated interception point. The lightnings began to close in and made sight of the southwest corner of Bougainville. In an act of extraordinary navigation, they had hit the precise location intended at 9.34 a.m., a single minute ahead of schedule. Right on top of them, passing serenely overhead, was Yamamoto, and unfortunately for him, security was quite lax. You see, the Japanese held superiority at Buen, thus they did not anticipate any enemy action. Alongside this, the Escort Zeros had their radios stripped out of them to reduce their weight. This meant they would not be able to communicate with the Bettys. Ugaki's Betty was carrying its regular armament of three 13mm guns and one 20mm gun, but because of the weight of the munition boxes, only a single belt was filled up for each. As for Yamamoto's Betty, there does not seem to be any evidence it was armed at all. Mitchell was shocked to see the two Betty bombers. The intelligence had told him there would only be one. This somewhat disrupted his plan, not knowing which one of the escorts was hiding Yamamoto. Furthermore, two lightnings piloted by Lieutenants Besby Holmes and Raymond Hine had to pull out when their belly tanks were released and it caused a technical problem. Thus Mitchell only had half the fighters as planned and now faced double the amount of Bettys. He did not know which Betty was Yamamoto's, but with icy resolve he did not improvise the plan and ordered Captain Lanfia to attack as planned, stating this. He's your meat, Tom. The rest of the lightnings climbed to perform cap actions as Mitchell expected the Japanese airbase at Kahili to toss some zeros over to greet Yamamoto. None would come. Another toss of the dice of fate, as it were. As Ugaki recounts the event, at 9.43 he was awoken when his plane suddenly began a steep diving turn. The pilot was unsure what was happening, but all of a sudden invasive maneuvers of the Zero Escorts alerted him something was wrong. The dark green canopy of the jungle hills were closing in on them as the gunnery opened up all the gun ports to prepare firing. Between the rushing wind from the openings and the guns, things were incredibly noisy. Ugaki told the pilot to try and remain with Yamamoto's plane, but it was too late. As Ugaki's plane banked south, he caught a glimpse of Yamamoto's plane, seeing this. It was staggering southward, just brushing the jungle top with reduced speed emitting black smoke and flames. Ugaki lost visual contact for some time, then only saw a column of smoke rising from the jungle. Ugaki's pilot flew over Cape Moria out to sea, descending steadily to gain some speed. Two lightnings were on their ass, and some .50 caliber rounds slammed into their wings and fuselage. The pilot frantically tried to pull up, but his propellers dug into the sea, causing the Betty to roll hard to the left. Ugaki was tossed from his seat, and he slammed against an interior bulkhead. As water began to flood the aircraft, he thought to himself, This is the end of Ugaki. But luckily for him and three other passengers, they managed to get free and they swam to the beach as they were helped ashore by Japanese soldiers and transported to Buen. Despite his miraculous survival, Ugaki's injuries were severe, including a severed radial artery and a compound fracture of the right arm, which would leave him out of action until 1944. Now, from the American point of view, they came upon the Japanese formation catching them by complete surprise. The escorting Zeros were flying above the bombers, scanning the horizon ahead of them to the south and not suspecting American fighters would be approaching them from behind at a lower altitude. 
There are quite a few accounts of how this all went down, but by all of them, Lanfier climbed to the left, going nose to nose with three escorting zeros while Lieutenant Rex Barber banked to the right. In response, all six of the zeros made a straight dive from their higher altitude positions to get between the bombers and the lightnings. Rather than firing directly at the American fighters, they kept firing in front of the lightnings, trying to prevent their line of sight from meeting up with the bombers. Within the eruption of all the chaos, both Bettys accelerated into their dives, distancing themselves. One plane banked right, going southwest towards the shoreline, while the other banked left, going east. Now, what follows next has actually been a fight going on for decades, with all participants going to their grave, swearing their perspective was the legitimate account of the event. Lanfier's story, which is by far the most well-known, states he quickly engaged three diving zeros to the left, managing to shoot down one before twisting away to attack the Bettys. He found the lead Betty skimming the jungle, heading for Kahili, and he dived in pursuit of it. With the other two zeros chasing to cut him off, Lanfia held course and fired a long steady burst across the Betty's course of flight. He watched the Betty's right engine and right wing catch on fire, and in his words, The bomber's wing tore off. The bomber plunged into the jungle. It exploded. That was the end of Admiral Isoruka Yamamoto. While racing out over the open sea towards Moila Point, Ugaki himself was horrified to see the funeral pyre of Yamamoto's crashed bomber. But at the same time, Rex Barber tells a different story. Rex claims Lamphere's initial maneuver going to the left was smart, as it allowed Barber the opportunity to attack the bombers without the zeros being on his tail. Thus Rex banked sharply to the right to fall in behind one of the Bettys. At around 1,000 feet above the jungle canopy, Rex opened fire, aiming over the fuselage of the right engine. Rex could see chunks of the Betty's engine and fires emerge as he continued to rake the Betty with his guns, until the Betty suddenly stopped in mid-air, nearly colliding with him before crashing into the jungle down below. Rex also claimed the Betty did not fire back at him at all. The Zero Escorts, however, did catch up to him but the sudden appearance of Lieutenant Besby Holmes and Raymond Hines saved him as they shot down the three zeros. Heading to the coast, Holmes and Hines pursued the remaining Betty and fired upon it, scoring some hits. Rex also dropped in behind what is assumed to be Yugaki's Betty, firing a burst over it before it hit the water. Holmes claimed to have shot down Yugaki's Betty by himself. Rex states this, Holmes' rounds must have hit the tanks and filled the bomber's wings with gas fumes because the ship exploded in his face. As Rex flew through the black smoke and debris, a large chunk of the Betty hit his right wing, cutting out his turbo supercharger intercooler. Meanwhile, Holmes and Hine were dogfighting two more zeros. Holmes would claim to have shot down one of the zeros, making his total around three zeros and one Betty. Hines' lightning was damaged in the fight, forcing him to head out east to sea with smoke trailing his engine. Hines would last be seen around 9.40 a.m. He was to be the only Allied casualty of Operation Vengeance. With both Bettys down, the mission was done and Mitchell ordered a withdrawal. The lightnings each headed home individually, operating at the very limit of their range and suffering the hot weather. The controversy over who exactly shot down Yamamoto's aircraft would begin the moment the pilots got back to base. In the words of Lieutenant Julius Jacobson, There were 15 of us who survived, and as far as who did the effective shooting, who cares? 
Yamamoto's plane had gone down around four miles inland, in a remote part of the jungle. Search parties took over a day to find the wreck. On April the 20th, they found the wrecked aircraft. There were no survivors. According to eyewitness testimony, Aisuruku Yamamoto was found sitting upright, still strapped to his seat, with one white-gloved hand resting upon his katana. Yamamoto's watch had stopped at 7.45. A bullet had entered his lower jaw and went out from his temple. Another pierced his shoulder blade. Yamamoto's body was wrapped in banyan leaves and carried down a trail to the mouth of the Wamai River, where it was taken to Buen by sea. His body would be cremated alongside the 11 other men aboard that betty, in a pit filled with brushwood and gasoline, and his ashes were flown back to truck and deposited at a Buddhist altar in Musashi's war operations room. News of Yamamoto's death was first restricted to a small circle of ranking officers and passageways around the operations room and the commanders-in-chief's cabin were placed off-limits. But the truth eventually leaked out to the crew of Musashi. Admiral Ugaki was seen in bandages holding a white box containing Yamamoto's ashes as he came aboard and the smell of the incense wafted from his cabin. Admiral Manichi Koga was named the new commander-in-chief. For over a month, the news was kept under wraps. On May the 22nd, Yamamoto's death was heard on the NHK News. The announcer broke into tears as he read the announcement. A special train carried the slain admiral's ashes from Yokozuka to Tokyo. By the way, this is all on film on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's uh, pretty moving. An imperial party including members of the royal household and family greeted its arrival at Uno Station. As diarist Kiyoshi Kiyozawa noted, there is widespread sentiment of dark foreboding about the future course of the war. Admiral Yamamoto was awarded posthumously the Grand Order of the Chrysanthemum, first class in the rank of Fleet Admiral. His funeral was held on June the 5th, the first anniversary of the Battle of Midway, ironically, which also coincided with the funeral of the legendary Admiral Togo Hirachiro, nine years previously. It was held in Hibiya Park, with hundreds of thousands coming to pay their respects. Pallbearers were selected from among the petty officers of the Musashi, carrying his casket draped in white cloth past the Diet and Imperial Palace. The Navy band played Chopin's funeral march as the casket was driven to Tama Cemetery, where it was placed in a grave alongside that of Admiral Togo. Some even sought to make Yamamoto a shrine but his close friend, Admiral Mitsumasa Yonai, said this. Yamamoto hated that kind of thing. If you defied him, he'd be even more embarrassed than anybody else. The new commander-in-chief of the combined fleet, Admiral Koga Minichi, would later say, There was only one Yamamoto, and no one is able to replace him. His loss is an unsupportable blow to us. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, watch check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I'm about to release my film review of Grave of the Fireflies, a real tearjerker. 
Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War channel. And this month's exclusive podcast over there is an interview I did with Chuck Myers. Chuck Myers is retired from the U.S. Navy and he served aboard multiple aircraft carriers. He is also an associate at the USS Hornet Museum today. He also happens to be the main historical consultant for the last Midway movie. Thus, the interview is about the USS Hornet and his time working on Midway. It's a pretty exciting interview. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Operation Vengeance was a success, leading to the death of the legendary Admiral Isoroku Yamamoto. Would his death help or worsen the Allied war effort? For that question to be answered, only time could tell. <laughs>